Hello there, and thank you for joining me. This is Daniel Talks About Star Wars, the show where I will be doing exactly as that title suggests. I am the titular Daniel, and welcome to what I sincerely hope is episode six of the show. I've had some pretty uh, major setbacks in regards to my episodes on The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, but hopefully by now I've resolved those issues and you've already listened to two wonderful episodes on the prequels, if I have gone through with the idea um, that I currently have in my head. Yeah, this is what happens when I record everything in advance and I try and do too much at once. <laughs> but yeah, this episode, it's back to our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, today we're looking at Revenge of the Sith from 2005, that's episode 3, as we continue on with the prequel trilogy, and the prequel trilogy comes to a conclusion. This is probably the majority of people's favourite prequel, I think, and quite a lot of people's favourite Star Wars film in general as well. And i got to say, it's never really been one that does much for me. I can certainly appreciate why people would see it as being the, the, the strongest prequel, but yeah, there's just something about it that I can't actually quite articulate why it doesn't quite work for me. Hopefully, I'll be able to as as I go on. But yeah, no real strong opinions on it overall. It's, it's um, you know, it's fine. And for the first time uh, <laughs> since obviously watching all these films and starting this show, um, this is one that hasn't really... Uh, changed all too much in terms of how I feel about it. Obviously, if you've listened to my previous episodes, you'll know that I'm just all over the place at the moment. Like, I seem to be feeling the opposite opinion <laughs> about every single one of these films that I have done for, like, the rest of my life. So, yeah. But this one, pretty consistent with uh, how I felt about it for most of my life. Um, let's get into what those opinions and feelings might be. So we start, and the opening crawl is um, an interesting one. Um, it just starts with a single word. It just says, war! Exclamation mark, which um, I know is something that people like to make fun of. I quite like it, because it, it, it's... I kind of do enjoy when the opening crawls are kind of that more... I don't know what the word is. I'm going to say pulpy, even though I don't exactly know what that word means. But I think it... I think that's what... <laughs> I think that's a correct application of it. I do think that's what George Lucas kind of is going for, you know, to sort of kind of hark back to those old Flash Gordon serials, like that kind of thing. So when it does just something that is a little bit kind of hokey feeling, like just war, exclamation mark, you know, I, I, I do quite enjoy it. But the whole opening to um, Revenge of the Sith is really strong, you know, right from the get-go. That music, once the main title theme is over is really nice, those drums, and yeah, that opening shot, as the two Jedi interceptors sort of fly down past this Republic ship, and it's quite uh, calm for the first few moments, and in the soundtrack we've only really got those drums, and then the, uh, the Force theme kicks in, and then it just takes a very sudden turn where the ship's kind of it's like this reveal, like suddenly we're in this chaotic battle, and it's it's a really good opening, I think, and that's a really fun shot 
yeah, it's just a really exciting way to open the film. And there's so much going on in the screen, and we've got all these ships and droids and whatever else. Um, we get a look at the ARC-170 Starfighter, which is just a, a ship that I personally really enjoy. Kind of a precursor to the X-Wing, I think. That was the intention. But it was one that back in the day I also had a, a Lego set of. And I think at the time that I got it, it was like probably my biggest and most impressive one. So a lot of uh, funness for that particular ship. And we've got some interaction uh, between Obi-Wan and Anakin, of course, our two main heroes. Their banter is a little bit better in this one. It still doesn't feel 100% genuine. I just don't think George Lucas is particularly uh, good at that. That's not a strong aspect of his writing, um, but it is better in this one. And something I did think as well is that they do both seem a lot older, kind of similar to how I thought the the 10-year jump from The Phantom Menace to Attack of the Clones was, you know, pretty believable as a result of what they managed to do with uh, hair and makeup and then also just the way the actors played the parts I thought was very convincing. And it again, I feel that way here. I do feel like Hayden is playing Anakin a little bit different. Not not massively. Um, same for Obi-Wan. So you do feel that uh, maturity. And then, yeah, the hair and makeup. I mean, looking at Obi-Wan especially is crazy because he looks exactly the age. I'm not entirely sure how old he's su supposed to be. I imagine 40s. And he looks exactly whatever age they're going for. Like, it is really good. Because then, if you look at pictures of Ewan McGregor at the Revenge of the Sith premiere, he, he's so young-looking. And he was. He was only in his, like, early 30s, I think. So when he would have filmed this, he could very well have only been, like, 30, 31. I don't know. But, yeah, so then to actually compare what he looked like at the time in real life to how he looks in this film, it's, it's actually really... Um, well done, and, you know, credit to the hair and makeup people. Although, strange thing, this has always been odd for me, just the fact that it's only been three years, I'm not entirely sure why that was, why George Lucas decided to make the Clone Wars so brief. It just doesn't feel like long enough. It feels like it's been longer, firstly, just in terms of, you know, if you looked at Attack of the Clones and then went into this... I'm sure the majority of people, and maybe I'm just projecting my own feelings onto this, but I, I feel like most people would assume that it's been a lot longer than three years. And yeah, that's just an odd thing. It definitely feels like it should have been at least five. An interesting detail here is there's a moment in this whole opening bit where some clone pilots are in trouble. I think it might be Oddball, the clone pilot that Obi-Wan name drops. They're in danger, they probably need a bit of help, and Anakin wants to go and help them, but Obi-Wan is like, no, don't do that, we need to get on with our mission. Which is just, I'm of two minds about this. Obviously, it it's a good way to show how Anakin, being the one that is more fueled by emotion and obviously the fact that he doesn't quite have the same control over his emotions and his feelings like Obi-Wan or the rest of the Jedi do. So to show him be the one that sort of puts more value 
into individual lives and actually cares for people more makes a lot of sense because that's why he doesn't entirely fit into the Jedi Order of this time because they don't really tolerate that kind of attitude. So on the one hand, it's good and it makes sense. But on the other hand, to show Anakin being this person that does put so much value into individuals completely goes against later when obviously he's just massacring people left, right and centre. And I, I just don't, I don't suppose I find the transition between those two kind of attitudes that Anakin has to be entirely believable, which I suppose I'll get onto later when we do talk about his downfall. But yeah, I suppose it's just an interesting detail to include when obviously Anakin later on in the film just goes so far the other way about how he just completely stops caring. And yeah, like I say, I just don't find it particularly believable, but we'll talk more about that when we get onto it later, I suppose. The visual effects in this opening sequence as well are really fantastic. They do hold up remarkably well. And I think overall, the um, the integration of live action elements and computer generated elements feels a lot more cohesive in this one uh, compared to Attack of the Clones. Everything looks just that bit nicer. I just don't think the way George Lucas wanted to go just 100%, well, not quite 100%, but very nearly 100%, like digital with all the environments and characters and, you know, whatever else um, in Attack of the Clones. I don't think the technology was quite there. And arguably, well, almost certainly, it's still not there when they made this film. I mean, you know, this is 2005, but the leap in terms of technology um, even in those three brief years between the two films, is noticeable. And this film um, does look a lot better, I think, than uh, its previous instalment. So I should probably talk about uh, some plot uh, before we move on any further. Um, the whole reason this battle is taking place, it's a battle over Coruscant, because the Chancellor has been kidnapped by a character that we haven't seen just yet. We'll see him in a minute, but he was mentioned in the opening crawl, I think. General Grievous, he kidnapped the Chancellor from his office, I suppose, <laughs> um, on Coruscant. And yeah, he's been taken aboard the Invisible Hand, the Separatist ship. And that's where Obi-Wan and Anakin are headed. And they make it in there just by the skin of their teeth. And we have a, a strange moment, I think, where... Like the two Jedi interceptors are kind of crashing into this hangar of the of the ship, and Obi Wan like leaps out and does a wonderful flip and like he lands in a little spin and starts cutting down battle droids. Meanwhile, Anakin is in there and he's kind of waiting for his ship to stop and he very calmly takes off his seatbelt and and just kind of hops out. It's just odd. There's quite there's been quite a few moments throughout this prequel trilogy where Obi-Wan and Anakin have kind of behaved in ways where you'd think it would be the other way round if that makes any sense. Like you kind of would assume that Anakin would be the one in this instance to kind of do the flashy like leap from his ship and you know start very stylishly 
chopping down droids and you'd think it would be Obi-Wan that would be the one to wait and kind of calmly get out of his ship. And there are quite a few instances like that throughout the the three films. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head um, right now, but it does make me think, like, maybe am I interpreting these characters wrong? I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But once that little bit is over, we do meet General Grievous. Um, General Grievous, what to say about him? I don't really have any strong feelings towards him. I suppose it's just, he is a rather needless inclusion. He doesn't contribute an awful lot or really anything to the plot. He's really just something for Obi-Wan to deal with later on in the film. And I know the the idea behind the character is that he's sort of supposed to be this echo of what Anakin will become. Obviously he's this this warrior, this, you know, organic being um that has just had all these horrible upgrades and different things done to him that he's like this He's essentially a, a droid now, so he's he's this man inside this horrible shell, which of course is what Anakin would become. I can see that, but A, the film doesn't really address that in any way, and doesn't even really do anything with that idea, and we don't even really know that that's what General Grievous is. You can kind of work it out you know, there are a few hints to what he sort of is if you look at his eyes or if there's that bit later on where Obi-Wan kind of pulls his chest open and you see all his organs on the inside. So you could kind of work it out through context, but we never really get explicitly told who or what General Grievous is anyway. So that doesn't entirely work. And also, that's just a happy coincidence anyway, I think, that... um he can sort of be this foreshadowing for what Anakin will become, because that was never the intention with the character in the script, I don't think. Well, it, it wasn't, you know. I've seen behind the scenes of this film, and they were doing concept art for General Grievous that was so varied, like no two pieces were the, were the same, you know. There was no real idea for what this character could be. You know, there there's concept art where he's just, like, a little boy in a chair, and, like, maybe this is General Grievous, you know? Like, so, that's what they were doing in pre-production. So, you know, that wasn't an idea that George Lucas had. That was just something that worked out once he decided that one particular piece of concept art was the one he liked the most. So that's what they went with. But, you know, uh, I like his design. I like the fact that he's got a quirky little uh, trait, he, he coughs a lot, and he's a Russian, I think? Is that the accent they were going for? Um, I don't know. Odd choice, but I kind of enjoy it. And I like the fact that um, it's Matthew Wood who voices General Grievous, who's just part of the um, the sound team. That's just a nice touch, that it was just one of the crew. And he actually, considering that that's the case, yeah, he actually does a, a really good job with it. The battle droids for this one as well are a little bit different, um, which I think, for the better, I think it's an improvement. The fact that they're uh, essentially comic relief now. I like their little uh, vo <laughs> their little voices that they have in this one. Um, obviously, in the previous two, they were a lot more robotic, kind of generic sounding, but this time they have um, sassy little personalities, which I do quite enjoy. Um, I think that's a lot more entertaining than 
how the battle droids have been in the previous two films, so I'm all for that. I can see why it would be a problem for some people, but the battle droids are, are laughable anyway, you know, they're so useless, so to give them personalities that kind of accentuate that is a good idea, I think. Obi-Wan and Anakin then make it to the Chancellor, they find him, they've given him a very nice big room to sit in, and a chair to watch the battle, so that was kind of them. Then Count Dooku arrives, Christopher Lee is back, and we have a pretty poor lightsaber fight, I think, to start the film with, which is a shame, because everything up until this point, I think, has been really quite good. Yeah, there's just nothing about this particular fight that I find engaging or exciting in any way. I think it's a shame that Obi-Wan gets taken out in a pretty lame way. But the end of it is brutal, I like, which I kind of like. I love the fact that Anakin just chops off both of Dooku's hands <laughs> and the face that Christopher Lee makes. He's like, oh my god. And then obviously Anakin has him in that kind of, he's made that X shape with the lightsabers and he's got Dooku on his knees. Like, that's a really cool image. But I think Anakin is far too easily swayed here, you know, to decapitate Dooku the way that he does, you know, to just straight up execute him. I know Anakin, as we've seen from the previous film, is not above horrific murder, but to have someone on their knees like this and, you know, what's he going to do? He's definitely won. Like, Dooku has well and truly lost at this point. You know, he's not going to do an awful lot without his hands. So just the fact that Anakin is like, ah, oh, I shouldn't really kill him. And then Palpatine is just like, nah, but but do it. And it's just like, all right. And like, that, that's it. And then afterwards, he's like, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that. The way he talks about it afterwards, it's like he's just uh, cheated on his diet or something. You know, not the fact that he's just chopped off someone's head. But yeah, and poor Christopher Lee, what a waste, you know. Count Dooku contributed absolutely nothing to these two films. You know, he's barely in the last one. He has no real connection to the characters in any meaningful way. And then at the start of this one, he's just wasted um, in both senses of the word. So yeah, that's a shame. Moving on, uh, the Chancellor is freed and he's looking very well in this one, like in Attack of the Clones, he looked like he was on his deathbed, and suddenly he looks quite a bit younger, so <laughs> good for him. Palpatine in this one is strange. I think I think it must just be because he knows that the war is coming to an end very soon, so like he's basically won, but he seems so different in this one, like he's just making absolutely no efforts to hide the fact that he just doesn't care about like, the way he talks about Obi-Wan to Anakin, he's just like, oh, just leave him, man, we need to go. And Anakin obviously is not going to leave him. But, like, he's just making no efforts to hide the fact that he <laughs> he just doesn't care about Obi-Wan. And the way he is in this film, it's much less charming and warm, which is something I've never really given Ian McDermott credit for before. But as Palpatine um, in these prequels, he, do he does often come across that way you know he he can be quite a likable and as i say like quite a warm uh, character when he's talking to anakin and so to have him in this one where he is a lot colder and not quite as uh, nice is quite jarring to me but shortly after that they are captured by general grievous but it's fine because r2 does this a little distraction which doesn't make 
any sense whatsoever, where he just starts popping out all his tools and he's got like some weird electricity thing going on. So he's causing, I think it's supposed to be a distraction. I don't think it actually does anything. So I guess that's just to make everybody in the room, you know, General Grievous and all the droids just go, ooh, so that Obi-Wan and Anakin can very quickly retrieve their lightsabers from General Grievous. I don't know. Um, but yeah, Obi-Wan and Anakin, they take on some Magna Guards, they take out a whole lot of battle droids, General Grievous escapes, and it's then that they have to land the Invisible Hand um, back on Coruscant. It's crashing down to the planet. Half of it just completely breaks off, and they are totally on fire, so it's not looking good. Um, but ma they manage to, well, Anakin manages to land the thing pretty successfully, and they are okay. They've completed their mission, they have the Chancellor, and that concludes the opening, and I think it's actually um, really solid. I think it's really good. Probably the best start to a film we've had since Return of the Jedi. In fact, I'd say almost definitely. After that, we get a nice little scene between Anakin and Padme. They are completely out in the open. They're hiding behind a pillar, but, it, you know, it's pretty easy to see them. To be fair, that is addressed. Um, Anakin is like, I don't care if anybody sees us, and Padme's like, don't be an idiot. But yeah, it's here that Obviously, Padme reveals to Anakin that she is pregnant, and I gotta say, the way Hayden plays out his reaction to the news is pretty perfect, I think. There's there's a really nice balance. You can see that he's genuinely pleased about it, but at the same time, he is absolutely dreading it. Like, you get all of those emotions in his, in his face and the way he composes himself. Like, it's a really genuine reaction, and I think he does really well there. Shortly after that, um, we get the first of Anakin's dreams in this film, obviously, where we see Padme dying um, as she's giving birth, so Anakin's not really, you know, he's not too pleased about that, because obviously the last time he was having dreams, um, they were about his mother, and then she died, so he's quite rightfully concerned, I think. It is interesting that the film straight up just tells us what's going to happen to Padme at the end. It's kind of... I do quite like that, um, actually. It, you know, it has a certain inevitability about it, because obviously, you know, there's no mention of any Padmes in the original trilogy, so we know she's probably not getting out of this too well. It's here that I noted that the film can't really decide whether or not Obi-Wan and Anakin are pals. There's so many times in this film where... It's usually when, just when Anakin and Padme are talking, and Padme usually says, like, oh, well, what about Obi-Wan? Or oh, we should tell Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan wants to help, and Anakin is like, nope, screw that guy. I don't want to talk to him. So, like, it's just strange. It doesn't feel like a genuine kind of... There would be a way to play that, I think, where it works, where his Anakin's feelings towards Obi-Wan are a little bit more complex, but as it's portrayed in the film, it does just come across as Anakin being just inconsistent, really, um, in terms of his character. Just the way one minute him and Obi-Wan will be having this fantastic banter, and they'll be, you know, laughing and talking together, and then in the next scene, Anakin just behaves like he hates even the mention of Obi-Wan's name. Like, it's really weird, and not a particularly well-balanced aspect of Anakin's personality. 
Again, I think there is a way to play that where it could work. But as it stands in the film, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't totally work. But after Anakin's dream, we have a scene with Yoda. Um, and I think it pretty much sums up what's wrong with the Jedi of this era and why ultimately they fail. Obviously, Anakin is telling Yoda about his dream, saying someone I care about, seeing death and it makes me sad and you know I don't want it to happen and Yoda's just like well the thing about death is that actually people are transforming into the force so when that happens don't be sad about it don't mourn them be happy because they are the force now and you know if you're sad about it quite frankly that means uh you're going to the dark side pal I'm simplifying things there but that's essentially what he says and that that tells us everything we need to know about the attitudes of the jedi at this time how they view en any kind of attachment as being selfish and uh, as starting you off on a path to the dark side like if someone had just validated anakin's feelings and said hey you're afraid that you know some you could lose someone you love um, as I should point out, he already has, you know, so he's already lost his mom, so he knows how it feels, um, and he's worried about it happening again, but if someone had just been like, you know, it's gonna be okay, <laughs> and, you know, what you're feeling is, is normal, and it's okay to feel the way that you do, what you need to do is try and turn those negative feelings you're having into something positive, or making sure that you have control over them you know don't let your feelings control you you know don't let those negative feelings cloud your judgment if somebody had just said to anakin that it's okay things would have gone a lot differently i think but the fact that yoda who we sort of think from his appearance in the original trilogy is sort of the epitome of everything that a jedi should be you know the fact that he's the one here saying to anakin you need to not be this way, is uh, very telling, I think, and a really effective way of almost putting the final nail in the coffin of, of for the Jedi of this one. It's just like, there's no reform here, like, they can't change, and what happens to them in this film, obviously, it happens for a reason. Not too long after that, we have Anakin, at the request of the Chancellor, uh, be appointed on the Jedi Council, but he is not given the rank of Jedi Master, which Anakin is not too pleased about, and we get some classic Anakin from Episode 2 here, where he immediately gets furious about the fact that this is happening, and everyone is just looking at him like, dude, <laughs> like, you need to chill. Um, so yeah, he hasn't changed all too much, our Anakin. But I do like... Um, how you can see, sort of in the following scene with Obi-Wan when they're talking, how Anakin is just kind of being pushed and pulled, and why there would be so much uncertainty for him. Um, you know, it's not exactly subtle, the way that, obviously, the Chancellor is manipulating him, and then on the other opposite side of that, the way the Jedi are basically just using him, so they can keep an eye on the Chancellor, and obviously the fact that they don't really trust him. I mean, Mace Windu says as much in the, I think in the, ne 
in the next scene. But yeah, I do like, even if it's not the most nuanced thing in the world, that you can, you can't deny that there is plenty of reason for Anakin to sort of feel the way he does. And I really like the the line that the scene ends on. Anakin asks Obi-Wan, obviously Obi-Wan has just told him that the council wants him to spy on the Chancellor, and Anakin's not too pleased about it, so he says, why are you asking me to do this? And, you know, Ewan McGregor delivers it really nicely, he just says the council is asking you. <laughs> like, you, you also get the fact that Obi-Wan kind of knows that the whole situation is not great either, and obviously he really does care about Anakin, you know, he's not comfortable with having to ask him to do it, but, you know, he's he's got to do what the council says, you know. So, yeah, that's just a, a nice um, moment. And then next, we've got some more talking. There is an awful lot of talking in this film. <laughs> I do find it to be a little bit of a, a drag. But, yeah, we've got Yoda, Obi-Wan, Mace Windu flying in a Republic gunship for some reason. Uh, not sure where they're going. But we have talk of the prophecy. It kind of dawned on me when I was watching this. I was like, did we even get any mention of the prophecy in episode two? I don't think we did. So th the fact that it's getting brought up here again, um, I don't know, just quite surprising. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Which is just odd, the fact that it's not really... The fact that the prophecy is just not really addressed too much at all is an odd choice. You would have thought it would be more important and something that had more emphasis kind of placed onto it. Like, that could have even have been something that was used to, you know, could have played into his fall to the dark side, could have, Palpatine could have used that as, like, a tool for manipulation, maybe putting this pressure on Anakin that, you know, he needs to bring balance to the Force, so he needs to do X, Y, and Z to make that happen. Uh, it could have been used to inflate Anakin's ego, maybe, you know, it, it, they could have done something with it, but, um, yeah, it's kind of just mentioned here and then not again until the end of the film. So after that, we've got some more talking, but it is a scene that I do enjoy, so I will forgive it. Um, it's the Darth Plagueis scene. And yeah, despite the fact that it's been memed to death at this point, it is actually a genuinely really good scene. It's an interesting story. It's one of those things that I think, given what we've seen in these, well, in this film and in the prior two films, it's the kind of scene that I think with the way George Lucas writes probably shouldn't have worked because I can imagine in an alternate reality <laughs> this scene being really dense and like full of useless information and Star Warsy terminology that we just don't need. But actually, it's written very efficiently. And the way Ian McDermott delivers it is very engaging. This story about Darth Plagueis the Wise, who could save people from death. You know, it is it is really interesting. I suppose my only criticism of it would be the fact that Anakin comes across as just being so dense. You know, he's obviously being played so hard. It was only a few scenes ago where he was worried about his wife dying and now Palpatine is all of a sudden saying you know if you did some dark side you could actually stop people from dying that would be crazy wouldn't it so yeah the fact that Anakin isn't catching on is a bit silly but you know for the most part the scene actually is very good we've got some action on Kashyyyk which is nice we haven't seen Kashyyyk before unless you want to count the holiday special which 
nobody should. So yeah, we've got some Wookiees. We've got Chewie. He's there. Um, which I would say I don't like it. But the fact that Chewie doesn't even really ever do anything kind of makes it okay. Like he's literally just standing off to the side for the whole thing. So the fact that he's sort of just in the background, I can I can deal with. And he only gets name dropped once when Yoda is obviously leaving a bit later on and he says goodbye Chewbacca, so it's fine. After that we see that Obi-Wan has been tasked with going to Utapau to take out General Grievous, so he's leaving, he's going on the mission solo. I don't know why Anakin doesn't go with him. I suppose they're not Master and Apprentice anymore, are they really? So... More inconsistency from Anakin, very similar to the last film, how in this particular moment he's being so sincere and so humble and so uh, gracious, you know, saying to Obi-Wan, you're a great teacher and I'm sorry for the way I've been and I actually really like you, so yeah. And Obi-Wan's like, oh, Anakin, that's really nice. And then in the very next scene, Anakin is back with Padme and he says, Obi-Wan's been here, hasn't he? And she's like, yeah, he was He was worried about you. And he's he's like, why? Why the hell was he here? <laughs> like, he, he's like really annoyed about it. And he's saying like, oh, Obi-Wan doesn't trust me and the council don't trust me. And like, he just keep he starts going off on all about all that again. The very next scene, it's so strange. It, it, it's just not realistic, I don't think. Like he is, his two personalities are just far too aggressive they lead there's no nuance in in the way it, it's it's written he's either incredibly humble or he's really annoyed like those are anakin's two modes but following obi-wan we obviously travel to utapau and i do like that planet i'm not sure how you would describe what kind of environment it is it's very unique i feel like i say that about all the planets really, when I think about it. Every time we visit a new planet, I'm like, oh yeah, I like it there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's. I suppose that just speaks to the uh, the talent of the various designers and the imagination of George Lucas and whatnot. So, yeah, Utapau, another really nice environment. Obi-Wan finds General Grievous and they face off. And i got to say, two big problems here. First one is... A little bit nitpicky, but at the same time, I think it's important. Obviously, General Grievous, he gets out his lightsabers, lightsabers that he has collected from various Jedi that he's slain. So he takes the lightsabers as prizes. He whips out four lightsabers, and two of them are, you can see, are the same hilt design as Anakin, what Anakin has in this film, and the same as what Obi-Wan has in this film. The same lightsaber hilt design that Obi-Wan is currently using to fight General Grievous and I know it's not a massive deal but I don't like it when it it feels like lightsabers aren't personal to people you know like a lot of the very minor Jedi in the prequels have a lot of the same lightsaber hilt designs and that really annoys me I don't like it when they're not all unique because I feel that's what a lightsaber is supposed to be. It's meant to be an extension of oneself when you're a Jedi. And I don't like it when it makes me feel like they just went and bought them from a shop somewhere, you know? Um, and the fact that Grievous has 
two very recognisable hilts um, as two of his lightsabers in this scene um, just feels quite lazy to me. You know, if they had to reuse assets for for Grievous's weapons, then they could have at least done it on for you know more minor characters' hilts. But the fact that it's Anakin's and Obi Wan's that he's using is just really annoying to me. And then also, this whole fight again, much like with the Dooku and Anakin and Obi Wan fight from the beginning, it's really underwhelming. And I think that that comes down to the fact that Grievous has you know, his forearms, and just feels really fake and not great, really. I don't really know how to describe it. It's just, yeah. I mean, it's, I suppose it's difficult to try and get a real actor, you know, Ewan McGregor, who is a man that exists, and he's fighting this four-armed robot man um, that does not exist. So to sort of do realistic choreography and make it feel sort of weighty and and real would be very difficult i think and so ultimately it just results in a not very good lightsaber fight and underwhelming as well just in the fact that obi-wan very quickly starts disarming literally general grievous like he chops off all of his hands and that's that's it then and then it becomes a chase so yeah not not great. After that, we go back to Coruscant. Mace Windu is having a Zoom call with some other people. Um, and he says, I sense a plot to destroy the Jedi. And it's like, you think, man? Like, Jesus. You said this more or less a few years ago. And he's very casual about it as well. I haven't really mentioned it, but Mace Windu really does suck. Um, I don't blame Samuel L. Jackson, but his performance in these films is really terrible. And... The character of Mace Windu is just so, so boring. He is the prime example of of everything wrong with the Jedi of this era. So he's quite a useful character to have around and everything about him kind of makes sense. But I'm sorry, that just doesn't excuse the fact that he is immensely boring to watch. And yeah, like I say, I don't blame Samuel L. Jackson. I think it is down to the direction and the writing of his character from George Lucas, but yeah, God, every time he's on screen, I just want to fall asleep. <laughs> but Mace tells Anakin to go and inform the Chancellor that Obi-Wan has engaged General Grievous, so he does, and it's in this scene that Palpatine finally reveals that he is, in fact, the Sith Lord they have all been looking for. The Sith Lord that they they know has been like, manipulating the Senate and, and everything for the past few years. Like, they've known that for a few years now. So I wonder what they've been doing about it this whole time. It seems like a whole lot of nothing is what they've been doing. So, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, surprise, surprise, it's Palpatine. At least, as well, Anakin is not immediately on board with the Chancellor. Like, he very quickly pulls out his lightsaber and is just like, are you serious, dude? Like, really? It's you? I like the way Hayden plays it when Palpatine is obviously like, hey, if you just listen to me, you can save your wife from certain death. And I like the the way Hayden delivers, just that he just says, what did you say? I like that moment. But he leaves the Chancellor just completely unattended uh, to go and tell Mace Windu that obviously Palpatine is the Sith Lord. He is Darth Sidious. Before we see that, though, we do quickly 
jump back to Obi-Wan and Grievous, and Obi-Wan kills Grievous. So, very important character, <laughs> General Grievous. Yeah, that's two for two now. Count Dooku and General Grievous, just absolutely nothing characters. They really serve no purpose other than to give the characters something to wave their lightsabers at for a little bit. But jumping back to Anakin and Mace, obviously Anakin is like, it's Palpatine, he's the Sith Lord, and Mace reacts completely, I suppose, completely within his character. There's a certain level Mace Windu never rises above, really. Um, He's always very calm, very collected, but Anakin has literally just told him that Chancellor Palpatine, the guy in charge of the Republic, is a Sith Lord. He's the one that they've been looking for, and Mace Windu is just like, hmm, and that's it. But we do get a very good scene afterwards, which I I will refer to as Padme's ruminations, because that's what the track that plays throughout this scene is called on the soundtrack, and it's just Anakin, he's in the uh, Jedi Council uh, room, (laughs) Um, and he's looking out the window, he's looking to Padme, she's in her apartment, (laughs) Um, whatever you want to call it, looking out her window to the Jedi Temple, so yeah, just a really powerful scene, there's no dialogue, it's just music, Uh, really, really nice music as well, very different to anything we've heard any of the other films uh, it's a really nice and unique track john williams just killing it as always and yeah obviously they can't see each other anakin and padme but they're looking right at each other and through the performances and the direction of the scene you sort of get everything you need and yeah really really good moment but the goodness ends pretty much immediately after that because we get another really bad lightsaber fight that's three now that i think have really let the film down. Um, Yeah, the fight between Mace and Palpatine, it's really awkward and really kind of slow, which I don't blame the actors for, like Samuel L. Jackson, despite the fact that he looks fantastic, you know, he was getting older at this point. Um, I mean, obviously this was like 15 years ago now, so not as old as he is today, obviously, because that's how that's how time works. <laughs> but, you know, he, he was getting older. Ian McDermott, I think he said in some behind-the-scenes stuff that he was not very uh, pleased about doing this scene, or he, he was worried about doing it because he's not, you know, he's not an action guy. Um, but George Lucas really wanted to be in on their faces during the scene so that's why sort of Ian McDermott did have to do quite a bit of it himself but even then like being close up on characters faces that's not really an effective way to shoot action so it doesn't really add anything to the scene I think in fact it detracts from the fight quite a lot so yeah overall just a really bad lightsaber fight I think and before that really awkward with because obviously Mace turns up with three other Jedi as well you've got my boy Kit Fisto, Sussy Tin did I say his name correctly then? I don't think I've ever said that name out loud. I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> um, and Agent Kolar. Those are the three Jedi he goes with. Agent Kolar and Tin get taken out immediately. Um, Kit Fisto lasts a little bit longer because he's amazing, uh, but unfortunately he does die soon after that. Yeah, that whole thing seemed... I mean, it makes sense that Mace Windu would take a few Jedi with him, I suppose, but just the fact that they get taken out so quickly and it looks really awkward when it happens as well like it just makes them look absolutely useless so yeah that's not a particularly good aspect of the scene either a real letdown especially after the really nice scene we just had before this 
But yeah, Mace Windu manages to overpower Palpatine, or maybe he doesn't. It might have been part of Palpatine's plan. It's not entirely clear if Mace Windu actually wins or not. But yeah, obviously, Mace Windu's going to kill Palpatine, which is not the Jedi way, as Anakin rightfully points out to him. Of course, not that Anakin can really say anything. I will say, despite my feelings towards the character of Mace Windu, he is the perfect person to have in this situation. Like, it couldn't have been... Well, perfect in the way that he is the worst person to be there. Like, if anybody's going to convince Anakin to not listen to Palpatine, it's not going to be Mace Windu. He represents everything that Anakin finds frustrating about the Jedi. So, yeah, he is the perfect guy to have in this scenario, because obviously Anakin cuts off his hand as he is about to strike Palpatine, and then Palpatine shoots him out that window with his lightning, and that's the end of Mace Windu. And Anakin is very uh, regretful about it for about three seconds. He says, what have I done? And then immediately he is completely committed to serving Palpatine, which I just don't buy at all. I can believe that Anakin would want to keep Palpatine around because he would absolutely want to find out how to save Padme, how to learn this supposed power that that Palpatine knows to save people from dying. I, I can believe that wholeheartedly. But the fact that Anakin is so immediately committed, like he says, I pledge myself to your teachings. And then when Palpatine is telling him about the plan, he's saying every Jedi is now an enemy. Uh, you need to go and kill them. Even Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's no good. You need to kill all of these people. And Anakin is just like, yep, okay. Like, there is no, you know, it's so black and white, there's no grey area. You don't see Anakin looking even a little bit apprehensive about doing any of this. He is just immediately like, yep, okay, if that's what I've got to do, then I will do that. You know, it, his his complete abandonment of any morals whatsoever is really just not convincing in the slightest to me, I don't think. And this whole bit could have been handled with a lot more nuance and would have been a lot better if it had. But having said that, seeing Anakin's march on the Jedi Temple, you know, with with his clone troopers, that's a really cool image. Yeah, George Lucas, he always knows what to do with really grand and epic visuals like that. Um, You know, he's a very good visual storyteller in that sense. And yeah, he just knows how to deliver a cool shot from time to time. Order 66, as well, is fantastic. And it's really nice payoff to the mystery of the clone army from the last one. It's like, well, why would Sidious give the Republic an army? You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, this is why, because um, they were all essentially just sleeper agents <laughs> um, waiting for somebody to tell them the Order 66 is going off, and yeah, they murder all the Jedi, and we get the um, the scene, obviously, where we see that happening. Um, the music is really good, and it is, in concept, a very sad scene. Um, I think the music elevates it quite a lot. I'm not entirely sure how effective it is as a scene, just because we're just seeing a whole lot of background characters get killed so there's no real emotional attachment there but it is important to see that this is a galaxy-wide thing that is happening and all of the jedi are being killed 
we see Anakin go to the younglings, obviously, and he, he pulls his lightsaber on them, so very heavily implied that Anakin obviously kills all of those children, which, much like the whole women and children thing from the last film, I just don't think is something that we needed to see. There's different rules, obviously, when it comes to real life and to films, to fiction, when you portray something like a death and, like, murder. From the perspective of this being a film, I think seeing Anakin sort of take out a load of Jedi with his clones, seeing this whole Order 66 thing going off is really cool. Obviously, it's this horrible thing, but it has, you know, it has dramatic weight, you know, we're following this character go down this really dark path and he's doing this horrible thing, and, you know, it is a horrible thing, but it's cool to see because this is a film and it's not real, but I think there's a certain line that is crossed when you then say, oh, and also he's gonna kill these kids as well, that suddenly it's not cool anymore, it's just, it's not nice, you know, the fact that he slaughtered children. And don't show Anakin doing it, because I just don't think it's necessary, and I don't like it. Um, and maybe that's just a personal thing, but I suppose, yeah, just when you're saying, when you make that step, make it abundantly clear that one of our protagonists, he's still a protagonist, I guess, at this at this point, Anakin, um, we're, we're still supposed to root for, well, not root for him, but, you know, we're, we're supposed to be attached to him. And I, yeah, it's just a step too far, I think is, I won't go on about it any longer because I'll just be repeating myself, but yeah, not good. I don't think. And it's, it's insane to me even anyway, that that was in included, but yeah, um, Bail Organa as portrayed by Jimmy Smith, um, suddenly gets a very increased role, um, from, well, not even from the last film, from his prior appearance in this film, like he's at the, he's at the start of the film for a, like a few seconds, and then he suddenly becomes a major player, um, yeah, and so he um, he tries to start sorting things out. We see the Tanta V four, which is nice. So we're getting our first hints now as we transition into the original trilogy era. We go to Mustafar. We see what will become Anakin's. It's just really good because. As soon as you see that, you're just like, oh, yes, that is where it's going to happen. That is where Anakin is going to get well and truly messed up. <laughs> so, yeah, going there kind of, it, it, it starts to build the anticipation. And we have Anakin's dark deeds. That's, again, what I'll refer to it as, because that's what the track on the soundtrack is called, Anakin's dark deeds. That whole bit where, yeah, we are back at the temple with Yoda and Obi-Wan. Meanwhile, Anakin is slaughtering all of the remaining separatists on Mustafar. We have that really hard cut where the like the choir comes in after Obi-Wan says, Who could have done this? And then we cut to Anakin and like that's a really, really good bit of editing. I really like that. And the music again is really good. Anakin's Dark Deeds is easily one of my favourite tracks from the entire saga. Meanwhile, the Emperor on Coruscant, he's called an, an emergency meeting and he is announcing, obviously, that the Jedi are traitors and look at what they've done to him. He's deformed now and the Republic is going to be reorganised into the First Galactic Empire. 
yeah, I really like that moment. Um, and I love that shot from behind, um, behind Palpatine where he like raises his hands and everybody's just applauding and it, it, really effective moment, actually. Going back to Mustafar, um, we have a moment where Anakin is standing crying to himself. Um, obviously it's here that we sort of see that perhaps he's feeling slightly regretful. I think it's too little too late. It doesn't feel very genuine to me just because there's no when Anakin is doing these things killing all these people he never he always seems like he's really into it and that he's just fully committed to the dark side now and this is what he does so when he's crying about it afterwards it doesn't feel entirely it doesn't ring true really but I can at least appreciate what George Lucas was going for you know he is conflicted even if it's not very well conveyed Padme is going to see Anakin, and Obi-Wan secretly sneaks on board uh, her ship. Um, there's a really nice, very small moment here from Ewan McGregor, just really nice little bit of acting when he, he kind of hides in this, don't even know what it is, but just this small little compartment on the ship, and he just sits down and he sort of waves his fingers to close the door. But it's just a, it is a very subtle moment, I think, just because he looks so defeated and tired and just not into at all what he's going to have to do, like, you know, in, in a little while. So, yeah, just a nice small moment, but I, I appreciated it. And once Padme arrives on Mustafar, um, her and Anakin are talking for a little bit. You can see how Anakin has become... Corrupted, obviously, he, he's starting to talk now about how, you know, him and Padme can rule the galaxy together and he can overthrow Palpatine and they can just make things the way that they want them to be. So, And he's kind of doing the crazy eyes, like, going on a little bit, which I'm not entirely sure if it feels that different, to be honest, um, compared to how Anakin was before. Like, some of the faces he pulls sometimes, particularly in the last film I'm talking about, when he was, like pulling weird faces at Padme, you know, it doesn't feel entirely out of character for him now to kind of be doing, like, the crazy face. <laughs> but on a more serious note, I think the acting in this scene is really good. As soon as Anakin sees Obi-Wan, the way, first of all, that shot is amazing, the way Obi-Wan is just standing aboard the ship, just looking straight out at Anakin, and the way that Anakin just shouts, liar, like, it's really, like, you feel it. And Hayden really sells it re very well. And then he starts strangling Padme, which is obviously awful. The whole situation is just... <laughs> and I, I, I do really love it um, for that reason. Like, it is very dire and sad and uh, tragic. It, you know, it, it is... Yeah, it is all those things. But I do actually really enjoy it for that. Because it, you, you feel the the weight and the kind of helplessness of the situation. And then we get going into what everybody, I think, has been waiting for ever since 1999 when these films kicked off. Well, before that, people have been wanting to see for many years the fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan. And for as bad as all the prior lightsaber duels have been in this film, um, Battle of the Heroes is... It doesn't make up for them, I don't think, because the previous fights in this film were very poor 
it it doesn't let you down let's say the battle of the heroes first of all the music again john williams incredible man incredible music and yeah the battle of the heroes is i i i can understand complaints of it being a little bit over choreographed like it is more like a, a dance but i don't care because it's still entertaining to watch but while the battle of the heroes is going on we do occasionally flip between that and Yoda and Sidious, their whole thing, and for a long time, actually, I was really against, uh, like, cutting to what those two were up to. I used to feel like the all of the focus should just be on Anakin and Obi-Wan, but actually, if I stop and think about it, it is necessary to see what Yoda is doing. Like, he wouldn't just do nothing while... So it makes sense to have him, obviously go after the Emperor and try and take him out. So it is a necessary inclusion. The quality of this fight between them isn't the best either, but it's it's still, in my opinion, a step up from everything else we've had before this, and a huge improvement as well on when Yoda fought in Attack of the Clones as well. That was just abysmal in that film, but here it's a little bit better. Plus they don't really do an awful lot of lightsaber fighting. A lot of it is throwing things at each other and shooting lightning and deflecting lightning so it's a little bit more dynamic in that sense but even before they get fighting i love um sassy yoda <laughs> he's just like giving palpatine all the shade and i i really like it so yeah actually i'm i am more on board for the fight between palpatine and yoda and i'm sure it's another one of those kind of nerdy like ooh, who would win in a fight between the Emperor and Yoda, I'm sure that was something that people probably wondered back in the day, so, you know, here's that, a nice little bit of fan service as well, I suppose. And I like the fact that Yoda, he, he kind of doesn't lose, he kind of is winning the fight, like, he does overpower Sidious, but he kind of just gets knocked off, kind of, because of the force of, you know, what they were, what they were doing, so he falls down while Palpatine manages to kind of cling on. But I like the fact that Yoda ultimately loses because the Jedi's time is up now, I'm afraid. The Sith have won, and what Obi-Wan and Yoda are doing, like what their goal sort of is, are not the Jedi way, you know? Yoda is is going to assassinate the Emperor, essentially, which is not what he should be doing, you know, that's not that's not something Yoda would preach, I don't think. And I think it takes losing this fight, arguably, for him to sort of realise that. And I think that's why he sort of says, oh no, I need to go into exile. You know, failed I have. I don't think he's necessarily talking about failing the fight. You know, it's more of a, a personal failure, like, oh God, you know, I've let this happen. And, you know, this is what I've become. So I need to go into exile because failed I have. And once that wraps up, we then do get a more soul focus on the Anakin and Obi-Wan fight. And it's, I don't have an awful lot to say about it, but it is, it is really enjoyable. And it's a lot of mini like set pieces as well, which I enjoy. Like there's a lot of different small locations that they kind of hop between. Um, and they're all different. Like at one point they're teetering on a thing. And then another time they're hanging off another thing. Like, you know, so it is a lot of uh, varied kind of, mini set pieces like I say and yeah really enjoyable I think and it's nice that the it seems exhausting obviously they're in this 
very hot and unforgiving environment anyway. But the fact that the fight really looks like it's taking it out of both of them is a nice touch as well, because we don't often get that, I don't think. But then we have the classic moment of, it's over Anakin, I have the high ground. And I know that's another aspect of this film that's been memed to death. But yeah, honestly, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what? Like what is he saying? Why does he say that? Like, why does that matter? It is genuinely quite a baffling line. Um, but yeah, Anakin says, uh, don't underestimate my power. And Obi-Wan's like, don't try it, man. And Anakin does try it. And he gets his one good arm and both of his legs chopped off, which is just brutal. It's crazy. You know, so he's missing all his limbs now. And then he slides down the ground and then he catches on fire. And so he gets burned to a crisp. And the makeup, when he is eventually kind of burned through and through, is really good. Like, very convincing and just horrific. <laughs> and I can't believe George Lucas made this film. Like, it's just so awful. Uh, not in terms of quality. I think this scene is probably the highlight of the film. But I mean, you know, what's going on is so awful. And the fact that George Star Wars is for kids, Lucas, <laughs> made this is quite fascinating to me. But you know what? He probably realised that this is what this is what needed to happen. So this is what happened. And he doesn't doesn't pull any punches. Um, you know, it is a messed up situation indeed. So Anakin gets roasted. Obi-Wan leaves. There's some really nice acting from Ewan McGregor here. You know, when he's just pouring his heart out to Anakin. Yeah, really nice, really powerful. But we all know that's not the end of Anakin. Um, he is rescued by Palpatine, and it's then that we have the birth of Darth Vader. And as that's going on, we have the birth of Darth Vader's children. Luke and Leia are born while Darth Vader is constructed, shall we say. I, I, do, I do like that, that sort of, you know, cutting back and forth between... Those two obviously very significant events, the birth of his children and the birth of his new self. Then, of course, Padme dies, and it is a step too far, I think, almost certainly, to say that she dies of a broken heart, essentially. Well, that's not what they say. She said They say she's lost the will to live. Obviously, that's because she's very upset. It's been argued since that, obviously, surely she has um, two pretty good reasons to live from this point on, you know, that being her children, but, you know, I guess not. Yeah, it's a step too far, I think, to say that that was the cause of her death. Like, it's a bit much, and you could have just had it so that she died, you know, as a result of childbirth, you know, some complications meant that, unfortunately, she loses her life, you know, and that would have been, you know, probably a sadder way to play it, I think, you know, that would have been even more tragic. But the fact that she's just like, oh, I lost the will to live, and <laughs> that's what kills her, is, yeah, pretty silly, I think. Um, but yeah, as Padme dies, uh, Darth Vader rises. There's that nice shot where he's kind of, the, I don't know what you want to call it, operating table that he was on is kind of rising, he's coming upwards, and it's a really cool shot, which I'm very glad was changed so that his arms are down by his sides, because I think there's a trailer of this film, where you see that shot, which, first of all, that's crazy that that would be in a trailer, but his arms are, like, up by his head, <laughs> so 
that's and it looked pretty silly i think so i'm glad that it was changed to just have his arms down by his side and i've got a hot take here about darth vader and this is the same way i feel about batman <laughs> um i think the design of darth vader lends itself much better to a body type like hayden christensen because it is it is him in the suit and i like the kind of more skinny oh you know that's the only word for it i guess like i, I like the more live that's a better word <laughs> for for it um yeah i prefer that type of body for vader i know obviously thicker uh more muscular vader is what we're more used to from the original trilogy and i think what most people would probably prefer and you know that that kind of physicality does have its advantages you know it does make for a very imposing character but um just from a personal standpoint i just think the design does lend itself to skinnier body type and like i say that's the same way i feel about batman <laughs> so <laughs> james Earl jones is back for his brief moment and he he delivers a, a really nice performance just in in his few lines the way he asks about padme you know it's really genuine sounding and and really nice yeah and just nice to have him back i remember when i was a kid and i watched this for the first time in the cinema which i can't believe i haven't even mentioned at this point i might talk about it a little bit afterwards that was a thought that i had i remember as a child i was like i wonder if he's gonna sound like anakin when he's still in the suit and then Obviously, he comes out with James Earl Jones' voice, so that answered that for me. And yeah, the film pretty much comes to an end there. Bail Organa adopts Leia. Obi-Wan takes Luke to Tatooine, obviously, to be with Owen Lars and Beru. So yeah, the children have been delivered. Uh, we're very suddenly into episode four. Like, we've got the Star Destroyers kind of... They're not quite there yet. They are still the Republic cruisers. Same with the... I think the V-Wings, they are, they're making like the TIE Fighter sounds, but they're not TIE Fighters just yet. So we are transitioning to episode four quite ab abruptly, really. There's a cheeky Grand Moff Tarkin to the side of Palpatine and Vader as they look out and see the construction of the Death Star. So, you know, it's all kicking off. And yeah, that ends the film. So, yeah, I feel like I was pretty hard on it, to be honest. But that that's how i feel about it there's just something about this one a lot of it really doesn't do it for me i just think be maybe it's because this one has so much potential i think to really be more than what it is yeah i just can't describe it just something about it just yeah doesn't work for me there's a lot of good in it though um particularly towards the end but yeah i think a lot of the stuff in the middle does let it down it's got a strong opening a strong ending yeah it's just that middle portion doesn't do it for me but i'll quickly just uh talk about the fact that this is the first film the first star wars film i saw in the cinema and i cannot really remember much about it i would have only been five at the time i feel like i can remember where we sat um it was kind of like central but a little bit back and a little bit to the left yeah i feel like i can remember just images i'm not sure if i came out of the film particularly excited or play well i mean when you're a kid you don't really have opinions about things i suppose so especially if i was five but i don't remember coming out of it particularly excited or happy about anything i mean it's a pretty dour film so 
and the fact thinking about the fact that I saw Anakin just get burned to a crisp when I was five years old is pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I suppose at the time I probably just loved it anyway because it's Star Wars, so I must have liked it. You know, I suppose that's the extent of your opinions when you're a child. I think so. Yeah, but you know what? In fact. I must have loved it because recreating scenes from this film was all I did at school with my friend when I was this age and for a few years after having watched it as well. You know, we used to do the Anakin Obi-Wan fight all the time and we used to recreate the start of the film as well. So, yeah, happy memories playing Revenge of the Sith in the playground. I'm sure we looked absolutely ridiculous when we did it, but it felt really cool to do at the time. I was always Anakin and my friend was Obi-Wan. I think if I were to do it these days, I'd rather be Obi-Wan, to be honest. But <laughs> um, but in that sense, you know, it is quite a special film to me. You know, big part of my childhood, so can't hate on it too much, but I think it, it definitely had the potential to be better. And in terms of ranking, I'm going to say that it is at the bottom for me, but I would put it at the same level as The Phantom Menace. So those two would be tied for me, which I know is probably a bit of a cop-out, but that's, I I can't put it above or below, I really don't know which way to go, so yeah, tied for now, I might have more feelings about it as, as I go on, so my opinion could change if I have some more time to think about it, but as it stands at the moment, The Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith are tied for me at the bottom of the list, followed by Attack of the Clones, which, yeah, Attack of the Clones is my favourite prequel. Never thought I'd say that again. <laughs> so, yeah, we're having all the surprises. That's crazy. Return of the Jedi used to be my least favourite film from the original trilogy, and that's currently my favourite. And the same with Attack of the Clones. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Attack of the Clones, then we've got The Empire Strikes Back, A New Hope is second, and then, as I say, Return of the Jedi is at the top for me. So yeah, that concludes the prequel trilogy. Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, was released in 2005, and it was written and directed by George Lucas. Next week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Well, not massively different, but I'm going to cover the Clone Wars film from, was it 2008, I want to say? Which I know is not standard practice when talking about the saga as a whole, but I just thought, why not include it? It was theatrically released, I watched it in the cinema, so as far as I'm concerned, it's as much a Star Wars film as any of the others, so we'll take a look at that next week. Not next week. I'm very conscious that I probably have said that an awful lot in all of these episodes. It's because, as I'm recording them, I haven't like released any of them yet, so I'm, I'm talking as if I'm doing like a weekly show, but I know it's not been a week, but I know I say that probably quite a lot next episode, which will only be a couple of days away. So yeah, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.